0: Well, if you'd like to just turn to page six on your notes, I just want to spend a few minutes on that first underlined statement, which is, the cross brings perfect reconciliation, true biblical peace. I want to spend a few minutes on this word peace. Um, If you come to, for example, Colossians 1.19... And it says there, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you know, one of the great statements in the Beatitudes is, Matthew 5 and verse 9 is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the grown-up, mature sons of God. It's the huios. In other words, so mature sons are peacemakers. And I just want to spend a few words on this word peace because the the Greek word is the word irene, which of course we get our lady's name from. And um, you get either Shiloh or Shalom in the Hebrew, and bo- all these words have a, have a different meaning to what the English word peace means. So it's not, it, you don't get the full flavor of this just by the word peace. Because, and, and if you really want to get this, I've, I found that uh, um, Martin Lloyd Jones' commentary on Ephesians years ago, he spends about four or five pages on this, and, and really gets it home to us. Because he says, if you want to really understand biblical peace, you've got to think of two people who are adversaries hating each other and trying to kill each other and then they come to the place where they lay down their arms now that's not biblical peace, it's just the end of hostility Amen? But for them to come to really biblical peace they would need to fall into each other's arms embrace each other and be reconciled and have a relationship of love from that day forward and only then if you come to biblical peace so, so, Biblical peace is the mending of a relationship which was formerly hostile to such a degree that the two who've made peace become lovers one of another. Amen? And mm-hmm. that's the full flavour of it. So, God made peace with the blood of his cross. That is, he, he... And you'll find all the ways you go through the New Testament, wherever the word peace comes, the word reconcile or reconciliation comes alongside it. They're, they're always connected together because because God is a God of reconciliation. Amen? He makes peace through the blood of his cross. And uh, it, that word was also used, that the Greek word irene, it was used in the medical profession when, uh, when a bone fractured, when a bone was broken, and then the broken parts came together, and as you know, the marrow oozes out and forms a, uh, and then as time goes by, that, that marrow hardens to become a very thick and strong mending of the fracture, and it is a a medical fact that when that whole process is completed, that the bone is now usually stronger at the point of fracture than it was before. Now, what was the broken part now becomes the strongest part of the bone. It's highly unlikely that it would ever break again at the same point of fracture, because and it's so completely and so thoroughly mended. Now, in the medical profession, when that... Mending of a fracture came to completion, so the bone was now completely if like unbreakable at the point of fracture. They would say, the bone has now come to peace. Exactly the same word would be used. And, and that gives us a clue to some of these scriptures. Like, for example, you read when Jesus was upon the cross in John chapter 19, uh, God didn't allow his bones to be broken. Amen? He didn't want any broken bones in his body. Hello? If you go to... Psalm 34, which this comes from, you'll find that there's a prophetic word which talks about, and perhaps we've got to just turn to that for a moment. Come to Psalm 34, which, it, which it's quoting. And it's prophetically fulfilled in the, the body of Christ, which is a powerful allegory for, for us. Psalm 34. And let's just come in at Let's come in at verse, verse 12. Who's a man that desires life and and loves many days that he may see good? Verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek what? Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are upon, are open to their cry. And the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous, the righteous cry out, the Lord hears. He delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the affliction of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them shall be broken. So if we, if we are peacemakers and if we fulfill these conditions of, of watching our tongue and other things, he said, then, then I'm going to bless you in every way. If you come just... <laughs> Quickly to Ephesians three, then I'm just going to leave this because it's a, it's a great subject and we could spend a lot of time on it. But I want to see that the power of the cross to make peace. Come to Ephesians, and chapter three. I'm sorry, chapter two. I meant to say, and you come in at verse eleven where it says this, or verse thirty. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. He's talking about the the great barrier between Jew and Gentile having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, and contained in the ordinances, so as to create for himself one new man from the two, thus making feasts, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And so, verse 7, He came and preached peace to you who are far off, that is, the Gentiles, and to you who were near, that is, the Jews, for through him we both have access by the one Spirit to the Father. And, and if so I could go on you come to, perhaps just turn to Romans chapter 5 for a moment, then I'm going to leave this. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God throughout all Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we, we, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen? So, so, so God himself is a great peacemaker. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't wait for man to come and repent. In fact, while we were enemies, yeah. while we were still hostile to God, he came to the cross and he died on the cross in order to make peace with us. And then he comes pleading by his spirit, be reconciled to God. Amen? Now, this is, this is God the peacemaker. He wants us to be the same. So, and you'll find in Scripture that when we get onto this subject, that you can't keep an offense against a, b- a brother, even if you think he's wrong, and you're right. You still go and make peace with him. Mm-hmm. If you think that you're wrong and he's right, even more reason you've got to go and make peace with him. But either way, you've got to go and seek reconciliation. Amen. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's this is a, a tremendous power in the cross, and it, it brought us to God. Now. Adam enjoyed with God, before his disobedience, he enjoyed the, the fellowship and the relationship of innocence. But that is nothing like as strong as the, as the power of grace. And when he sinned, the relationship was broken, and, and, and then God came, and he died on the cross. He took the initiative. While we were yet enemies, while we were against God, he came and died for us, and then pleaded by the Spirit, be reconciled to God. And then and then through the cross he makes peace. And and, and the peace of, of grace is unbreakable. It's like the bones unbreakable now. You know nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing can nothing nothing there's not it's not performance, it's not works. It's just I just live in the the, the amazing glory of his grace. Amen? So so all over the New Testament we could spend a, a whole morning on this. But I just want you to do, to say that the cross brings perfect re- reconciliation. It brings true biblical peace. I've already dealt with um, the wrath thing, so we'll just we'll uh, go move on. Sin broke the relationship and caused separation between God and man. This is perfectly mended through the cross and is now unbreakable through grace. As a result, what Jesus did, Satan and his angels no longer have any power or claim over us. Let's just go to this one more thing, Colossians chapter 2. Because the cross then goes on. Chapter 2. It speaks from verse 11 how we were buried with him through baptism and we were raised with him through faith in the working of God. Verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Uh, let's just spend a few moments on that. He, he takes it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And you find uh, this, in John chapter 19, for example, um, and if you read John chapter 19, you read Matthew 27 from about verse 50, and you read Mark... 15 from about 37, you get all the little bits together there. But well, basically, here's Jesus on the cross. He, he was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, at, 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 thr- at exactly midday, at, at, uh, at the, at the, the, he cried, uh, the, the darkness, a great earthquake and darkness covered the earth. And for, six, for another three hours, up until 3 p.m., he was hanging on the cross. So it was a six-hour period of actually being on the cross. And if you include all the, the trial and, the, and the, the scourgings and the mockings, it was getting on towards 24 hours. And Jesus gladly endured that. In fact, he keeps telling his disciples, you know, I can't wait to get to the cross because beyond the pain of the cross, there's an eternity where, where, where I'm going to live in all the power of my resurrection and you're going to be part of my resurrection. You're going to live in the same power. And, and, you know, the benefits that are going to come out of the cross are so fantastic that the pain is well worth it. Mm-hmm. And, and so while the cross is a, is a time of great agony, and, and it's, it's good to dwell on it, uh, this, this attitude of Jesus was, it was a joy. I'll get through that, and then, but look what's waiting for me on the other side. Mm. Amen? Yes. Everything's going to be paid for. Everything's going to be finished. Mm-hmm. And so as he, as he hung on the cross, it says this in John Chapter 19 and verse 30. It says it in Matthew 27. It says it in in Mark 15. It says he suddenly cried out with a loud voice. Mm -hmm. And the loud voice was the it was the particular words that used, it was the cry that was used in gladiator battles. When two gladiators were fighting, Mm -hmm. and one one gladiator breaks through the other guy's defense and thrusts the sword right deep inside his adversary and, and, and ends the contest. And he cried, It's finished! It's over, Telios. Now, that was the cry. It wasn't the cry of pain. It was the cry of victory. And he uses this particular Greek word, telios or telio, is the verb, which, 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 had, which was used in accountancy as well as in, in contest. When you totally vanquished, when it was finished, when it was over, it was done with, then it was finished. And it was used in accountancy that when someone had lots of debts against them and, they, and someone came and paid the debts on every bill as it was fully paid without a cent owing, a penny owing, or whatever. (laughs) They would write this word, teleos, which literally meant nothing to pay. It's finished. It's over. And on everything, all the handwriting of everything that was against us, he took it out of the way, he nailed it to the cross and and, and wrote in his blood, teleos, 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 it's finished. There's nothing to pay. Now, listen, beloved, that was complete at 3 p.m. on on crucifixion day. Yes. He didn't continue to pay for sin in the tomb. That's a, that's a misconception that for three days he was being tormented by demons, still in the process of paying for sin. It was finished at the cross. Mm-hmm. And and it said, then says he dismissed his spirit. That's what it, it, and, and at that moment, he died, and he chose the moment to die. Mm. And he says this in John chapter 10, verse 18. He says, no one can take my life from me. Yes. I have authority. The word's exousia. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And I, I've never lost control of my life, and the devil never had control of me. He never could choose to kill me. I could only choose to die. Hello, and there's a big difference between those two statements. And I died right on time, the exact moment, when there's no point in hanging around what sin was paid for, because that's what I was on the cross for. So once sin was paid for? I wasn't going to go hanging there for another two or three days of misery. So the moment it was all over, I, he dismissed his spirit and departed. And this hard-boiled centurion, who probably killed many men in battle and probably crucified quite a few people before, he'd never seen anybody behave like Jesus. From the moment he lay on the ground and said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing to the moment when he cried, it's finished, mm-hmm. and dismissed its spirit. And then it says in both Mark and Matthew that, w- that the centurion, looking right at him, mm-hmm. when he saw the way that he died, mm-hmm. as someone totally in charge of his own execution, he fell on his knees and he said, truly, this is the Son of God. And undoubtedly, was powerfully converted there. What a tremendous thing. So one of the thieves was converted and the centurion was converted. He couldn't stop getting people saved up to the the last (laughs) breath of his body. Amen? Mm -hmm. If you follow him, then you're going to be a fisher of men. He never stopped fishing men. Right, The last breath he breathed, he got that centurion Mm -hmm. and got him saved. Amen? And he was there in the glory with him. Amen? What a fantastic saviour. Totally in charge. Totally finished. It's finished. And as a result, he tells us one more thing in John chapter 12, Let's just pick that one up. You just need to pick it up. As he's speaking to his disciples about going to the cross and what it's going to accomplish. And, and says it's, it's, the, it's the reason that he came into the world and it's the, it's the power by which God is going to be glorified. You come to verse 31. Mm. And after the Father's spoken, in verse 31 he says, Now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, Mm -hmm. I will draw all peoples to myself. Mm -hmm. So from that moment, the devil ceased to be the prince of this world, okay? Mm -hmm. Because Jesus not only paid for all our sins, but he he paid the redemption price for all of the physical world of creation. Amen? Now, he had the right as creator, but then because he given it into the hands of Adam and Adam had become a debtor and, 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 and the devil had come and take possession of what was Adam, Adam's inheritance, he came back as the last Adam to recover that lost debt. Amen? you understand that? Yeah. So another thing he did was he paid for the whole of physical creation and from that moment, not one square inch of the physical world belongs to the devil, it all belongs to Jesus. He's paid for it with his blood. So there's no devil parts of the world. They'd, if the devil's still sitting there, it's because no one's yet kicked him off. Yes. Amen? Yes. Amen? Yes. That's the Amen. truth. Amen. And, and it, we need to start getting active about bringing him, bringing him into his inheritance. Amen. If you just come for a moment to Revelation 5, just, just, to, just to complete this whole thought. Revelation chapter 5. And here we find, I haven't time to go through all the scriptures, but you'll find that through scripture that, that when land was sold, particularly like when Jeremiah and the people were going to go into captivity, he bought a piece of land. Amen? You know the story, Jeremiah 24. And, and, and then he takes a, the title deed of the property, because when if you go back to Exodus, when someone got into debt and because of debt became someone's slave, then you had to write at the same time, the terms of redemption. It was always possible to buy someone out of slavery by paying the redemption terms. And if they lost their inheritance, it went into someone else's position, you could always go and buy it back, providing you paid the redemption price. So it was, it was never, if you like, eternally lost. It was temporarily lost until the debt was paid. Yeah. And any blood relative who could prove his relationship could go to the present owner of the slave or the present owner of the property and say, look, I'm so-and-so's relative, this is my, this is the proof of my bloodline and and I'm here to pay the full redemption price and uh, and on that moment that new owner could no longer keep possession of it, he had to return it back to the original owner because the debt was now being paid. Amen? And that that was that was called the kinsman redeemer. He had to be a kinsman, and he had to be able to pay the redemption price. And it's a great theme through Scripture, which is a tremendous study to do. Sometimes it's all, of course, a glorious picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. And so, so what he does now, if you come to Revelation five, and and they had to write one copy of the redemption deed had to be written and given to the to the local judge, and the second copy was put into some. Earthenware pot and preserve so it could stay in the ground for a long time and still be discovered. And these two redemption deeds were had to be legally made. And if any relative could take the redemption deed and say, look, look, I'm I'm here's my underblood relative, and I've come to pay the full redemption price to buy to buy this back from that temporary owner who took it because someone got into debt, and I'm buying it back, bring it back into the family inheritance because that's where it belongs. And the, the year of Jubilee had to be restored anyway. Amen? Now, these are all powerful things to teach us New Testament truth. And you've got to understand how they apply. So here, on, in Revelation 5, um, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside the back with seven seals. And, and that actually was... Is, I'm not going to go into all it all, but to show you all the verses, but that's the title to the whole earth. And it's in in the righteous judge's hands. And and then he says, so, verse 4, verse 2, I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. Notice these three areas, the heaven and the earth and under the earth, these three regions. Was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and and open and read the scroll, or to look at it. But one of the elders who sat, uh, one of the elders said to me, "Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. He's, he's if you like, he's declaring his human pedigree here. To say now, this man has a blood right to do this thing. Has prevailed, and to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne are the four living creatures." And then verse seven, he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And this is, and and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and twenty four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of the incense which are the prayers of the saints. And and this is actually going to be fulfilled because, and and they sang a new song: "You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, or to break its seals, for you were slain." And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made us to be a kingdom and a priesthood. Is a better translation. Made us to be a kingdom and a priesthood to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Hallelujah. And so he breaks the seals and all of the redeemed ones cry out with great joy. Amen? And, And on the cross, when he had ascended to his... That's one of the first things he did. He took that scroll and said, Right, it's mine. The whole earth's mine. Amen. I've got all power and authority, and I have and I've, bought it back with my blood, and there's not a square inch of the earth that belongs to the devil anymore. If he's still sitting there, he's li- sitting there as an illegal occupier, and the time has come for the redeemed to rise up and possess the earth. Amen. Because yeah. yeah. Paul says, The earth is yours. That's what he says. Amen. As, he's, as the descendants of Abraham. We, and, and so there isn't anywhere on earth that we haven't got a right to say, we're going to go and take that back from the devil and, and, and to bring it back, if you like, under the direct rule and government of the one who paid his blood for it. So he not only gave his blood for our sins, he gave his blood for the whole of physical creation. When there isn't any place. I mean, even the uttermost dark demonic mountains of Tibet or Afghanistan or uh, of any place, they, they all belong to God. Amen there's no holy shrine anywhere where the devil says this is my territory you say no it ain't you 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 we're going we come to kick you out in Jesus name amen. Amen. and to bring the king here in, in its place amen yes. amen okay well we, we we find that at the moment that Jesus cried out it's finished we're told in in, in Matthew and Mark particularly we we read that the the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And we read from the book of Hebrews, signifying that the way into the holiest of all is now open. So from, from, from 3 p.m. on the day of his crucifixion, the, 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 the veil was ripped, because God could just couldn't wait to get back into fellowship with man. And now we're exhorted in Hebrews 10 to have boldness, okay. to enter into a holy place, through the the literal translation of the Greek is through the flesh, freshly slain veil of his flesh. In other words, th- th- see, there's an eternal nowness about that sacrifice. It, 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 when Jesus was crucified in time, it, 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 it ran from, from the beginning to the end of time. In fact, it filled eternity with its power. Does that make sense to you? Thank you, Lord. You've got to understand that we... If we're going to get into real truth, we've got to allow our spirits to get out of this time space world and get into the eternal realm. And the eternal realm is, is an eternal now. God just is. He's not, will be, going to be, has been, he is. Amen. There's no tense to God. He's just God is. He lives in, in and, and eternity isn't a long time, as many of our songs erroneously teach it. Eternity. is just an ever-glorious now. And in your spirit, man. When you be born again and your spirit man's come to understanding of these things, you can step in your spirit man out of this time-space world into eternity where you'll find that everything in eternity is a glorious eternal now. And you'll find there Jesus Christ freshly slain as if it had just happened and it's like that for all eternity. Amen? Now Abraham learned this 2,000 years before Jesus was crucified and he stepped into eternity in his spirit man and was saved by the power of the cross 2,000 years before it took place in time. And he became a New Covenant believer, mm. had face-to-face fellowship with God, and he, he, he only met the high priest of the New Covenant, which is Melchizedek, and he gave him bread and wine. So here he is, if you like, enjoying the Last Supper 2,000 years before it took place in time, breaking bread and having fellowship with, with God in unveiled relationship because mm. he, he saw... Uh, God showed him, and, he, and he, he stepped out of the boundaries of time into the glory of eternity and could live in all the benefits of eternity, even though in time it had not yet taken place, it already filled eternity. In the same way, you and I can do that 2,000 years after the event, and we can step into eternity and we can <laughs> embrace the cross as a just now happening. That's why it's totally unnecessary and totally impossible for Jesus ever, ever to be crucified again. And that's why the Roman Catholic Mass is so erroneous. He doesn't need, and it says that very clearly in the book of Hebrews, he doesn't need to go on continually being crucified because the once e- e- eternally lasts for all, to the beginning to the end of time, amen, and it's always and ever fresh now. David, a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, If you read Psalm 22, you can only come to the conclusion that he must have seen a video of Jesus being crucified. Because he writes down every detail of what was happening on the cross a thousand years before it took place in time. And he embraces the cross and so he raises up David's tabernacle which totally abandons all the Jewish laws and restrictions. There's no inner court, no outer court. There's just a little tent where you pull back the flap and there is the glory of God. And David, who isn't even of the tribe of Levi, goes in there as a priest and as a king and doesn't, doesn't drop dead. He just enjoys totally uninhibited face-to-face fellowship with God. Never in David's tabernacle did... He ever offered one sacrifice for sin because the perfect lamb had already been slain. Although it hadn't yet happened in time, it already is in the spirit realm. Do you get that? Yeah. The same is true of Abraham. He never ever offered any sacrifices. He just lived in face-to-face fellowship with God. In perfect intimacy because he's the father of all those that believe and he was living as a new covenant believer. When, when Jesus was on earth in John 8, he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. They said, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old. How could Abraham have seen your day? And his reply was, before Abraham was, I am. I'm the eternal one. I met him in Genesis 14 when he met Melchizedek. That was me. And he and I were having this wonderful fellowship and we sat down and we broke bread together and and with unveiled face he beheld me and and saw the power and glory of what I would accomplished and he was totally justified simply by faith in what I had accomplished for him at the cross, although it had not yet happened in time. Mm. Amen? Hallelujah. Does that make any sense to you? Well, I hope it does. Okay, let's go on to page 7. We read in Acts 4.33, With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. We must understand the power of the resurrection, and to do that, we need to understand four things. And I want to just spend my time, or some of it anyway, on that. Now, the first thing we've got to understand is what I have called, it's not a biblical phrase, but I've called it, it's, it's biblical, but it's not like that. i call called it the Law of Heredity. Now, in the Bible, you will find that the Bible talks about law in, in one of three ways, and you've got to be clear on which of these three ways it's talking about. It talks about law as a principle. Like, I believe in law and order, not anarchy. Amen? Now, God is a God of law in that sense. Amen? He rules by government and by, by, by uh, commandments, and, 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 and our job is to obey all those commandments. And, and, and in that sense, we, we never, ever become lawless. Amen? So there's a principle of law that that the way God's ordered all of society is he sets people in authority and he requires people and that authority comes from God. They are to be in authority submitted to the rule and government of God and we obey that authority because the authority comes from God. Now that's how society gets into order. The second way that law is used is in the sense of those principles then you start to spell out the particulars. All right, what's, what's the law of driving in Britain when you could go for pages and pages and pages now because it has got so complicated? I remember a day not so long ago when there was no such thing as yellow lines um, or white lines, because I'm in the wrong country, white lines down the middle of the road. I mean, Here you, you are driving up, say, some mountain road in Wales and you were expected to use your common sense about when it was wise or not wise to overtake. And some people didn't use their common sense. So you looked and, and, and then so one day suddenly these solid white lines appeared and from now on, if you like, the new law codified the sin that you were already committing which was to drive stupidly. <laughs> now there's a law which says don't cross this line if you do you're guilty of a particular law and you're now liable to a penalty. So what it did was to codify, to discover the wrong attitude that was already in the heart. Have you got the picture? So here you are driving up this same mountain road in Wales, there's no traffic anywhere, and these stinking old lorries blowing under your nose. Think, boy, I, want, I must get past the it'll drive me crazy. So you think, well, there's nobody around, I'm just going to get past this stinking thing. Now you, So you, you break the law in order to get past the lorry because you're not going to be stunk out for, for a while. Now, before, it was a violation of your conscience, now it's a violation of law. Before, you were just foolish, now you've become a criminal. And that's what... The law of Moses did. It just exposed all the evil things that were already in our hearts. Because Paul says, I, I didn't know, the law said, I didn't know what it was to covet until the law said, thou shalt not covet. Because if there's no law, even though you do it, you have a feeling it's wrong, it doesn't codify your sin. Do you understand? Amen? So, so law is used in that sense of, of codifying the rules and regulations which God has set in place to teach us proper behavior. <coughs> And there's a third way which law is used, and that's particu- uh, this is particularly, uh, both of these latter two anyway, are in the book of Romans, where it talks about law in the sense of a scientific principle, like, like the law of gravity. You, let me give you an example. Come to Luke chapter 6, and I'll give you an example of this. Come to Luke chapter 6. And you'll find that beginning. Um, I guess you can begin at verse verse twenty-seven, and it gives you a whole set of like spiritual principles which apply to anyone. Because uh, uh, like like take in the physical, the law of gravity. That's a good example. Now, the law of gravity is a is a, you know, a scientific law that works for anyone, anywhere, anytime. And if you jump off a high building, you will accelerate to the ground at a a rate of 32 feet per second per second. And you'll go on accelerating until finally wind resistance, balances out the pull of gravity, and you'll probably hit the ground at something like 170 miles an hour, which is quite a painful speed to hit the ground. (laughs) Depends on on what clothing you are wearing, what sort of wind resistance you've got, but it's still pretty fast. But, but, But if it wasn't for the wind, you'd go on accelerating 32 feet per second per second and you wouldn't stop accelerating. That's the pull of gravity, and it works anywhere, anytime. You can be a a Chinaman and jump off a building in Peking, or an American and jump off a building in New York. It doesn't make any difference. You can be a Chinaman in London. It still doesn't make any difference. (laughs) You can be fat, thin, poor, clever or stupid, uneducated, rich. It doesn't make any difference. It's a totally relentless law. Anyone who does it, anytime, anywhere in the world, day or night, it'll have the same effect. You can even jump off a building and say, I don't believe in gravity. It doesn't make any <laughs> difference. It still works. It's a relentless law of the physical realm. Now, in the spirit realm, there are similar relentless laws. And they're listed here, a lot of them here, in Luke chapter 6, which I'm not going to go into this morning. I'll just come to one of them, which we're quite familiar with, verse 38. It says, judge and you will not be judged. Condemn and you won't be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. These are the laws I'm talking about. Come to 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your lap. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now that's the law. So if you're mean, God's going to treat you with meanness. If you're generous, God's going to treat you with generosity. It's a law. It's nothing even to do with being a Christian. Because I had this experience coming... Back from Seoul in South Korea, when she was flying, I think, in a, 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 some plane, I, forget, I think a Korean Airlines plane to Paris, and she was sitting between two Korean businessmen. If I remember the story correctly, I hope I don't mess up on this, but as I understand it, these two Korean Buddhist businessmen were on their way to Europe to make their money, but they both had wives who were been converted or one of them at least had a wife. And these wives were now giving their money to Jesus and to the new move of God in Korea, and these men saw their businesses were prospering because these wives were giving to Jesus. So they started giving them more money to give to Jesus, and they were prospering all the more. (laughs) And they were were reaping the benefits of that law without even being Christians. They were just using their, their Christian wives as intermediaries to get God's blessing upon their lives. So that shows you that it's not a matter of relationship, it's just a matter of law. Hello? Hmm? What did you call that law, the third one? The third law is is a, is is a law in the scientific sense. okay? It, it's a relentless principle that works. And there are many that work in the physical realm, like the law of gravity, but there are many that work in the spirit realm. Like, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Yeah. You can pray your heart out and God says, I can't hear a word you're saying because you <coughs> have not forgiven so-and-so for the wrong they did to you. So you might as well not even bother to pray. Amen. Every time you read any passage on prayer, you're to get an exhortation about forgiveness. Otherwise, your prayers are a waste of time. Amen. Mm-hmm. And there's and, all and these principles we need to read them and start to because if you obey the principle, then you reap the benefit of that law. All right. Now let's come to, um, and in that sense, I want us to bring us to the law of hereditary. It's a law. And the best example, I mean, I could go into all that, but I'm not going to. You find it you know, it works. For, well, we'll probably come into it later on anyway. Come now to Hebrews chapter 7. And let's get on to the law of heredity. And here we have... Here, the writer to the Hebrews is, just wants to show them the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. That's that's the object of this. That's what he wants to do. In order to do that, he then states this principle. And if you come to... um, And he comes to verse 4. He says, now consider this great man, how great this man was. He's talking about things we have to learn about Melchizedek. And he says, now consider how great this man was, Melchizedek was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. And I was he's saying that the, the whole tribe of Levi and all the Levites, they, their original uh, ancestor was Abraham. Levi himself was the great grandson of Abraham. Amen? He had Isaac, then he had Jacob, and then, or Isaac had Jacob, and then Jacob finally had Levi. So Levi is the great grandson of Abraham. And he's saying now, when Melchizedek met him, and he's talking about in Genesis 14, Abraham demonstrated his recognized inferiority to Melchizedek and the superiority of Melchizedek in one of two ways. First of all, Abraham bowed before him and received a blessing from him. Secondly, Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek, showing by those two acts his inferiority and his willingness to recognize the superiority of Melchizedek. Okay, you've got the argument so forth. So therefore, by any... So let's just read on. Verse 7. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. And verse... Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he received them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Talking about Melchizedek. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. Now, here's the, the jump of, of this law, of the logic of this law of heredity. Because what we're being told is this, that we, every human being are, not physically, but spiritually, are all your descendants right to the end of your family line, however long that is. So in your loins, in your inner being, are all the children that you're going to have and your children's children, your children's children, your children right, right through to the end of your genealogy. It may go on for 100 generations or 200 generations, but they're all there in your loins, participating with you and experiencing either the benefits or the losses of the action which you take. Now that's the law of heredity. It's a very important principle to understand. And so and so Levi, we're told, although he was not yet born, didn't yet exist, even, even Isaac had not yet been born. So there are three generations that were not yet born, but we're told, nevertheless, Levi was in the loins of Abraham, and when Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek, he offered tithes in him, and so he participated in an act of submission. When Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Levi was in Abraham, receiving the benefit of that blessing, along with his forefather Abraham. And so by two indisputable ways, Levi is shown, shows himself to be inferior to Melchizedek, needing to be blessed by him, and he deserves, so so Levi was acting in that submissive way because he was in the loins of Abraham while Abraham did it. He participated with him in that act and became either the beneficiary or the victim of that act. (laughs) Hello? Now that's the principle. Now, to try and illustrate this, I just take a, a little bit of Texan history um, to try and illustrate this, because I want you to get hold of this. So I'll use the example of, because I, when I work this out, if my great-grandfather, who was just about the right age, had chosen to leave England in 1825 and become one of the original 300 families from Europe that founded the state of Texas under Stephen Austin, that actually happened. And they each received 4,000 acres of good farming land as a free gift, providing they, providing they farmed at least 50 acres, within, within two years it became their permanent family inheritance. What they didn't know at the time was that underneath that rich farmland were vast oil deposits. So later on, those 300 families became not only rich through very successful farming, but they became filthy rich through all the oil that was underneath. And all those 300 families today are multi-multi-millionaires and of course, so were their descendants. So here's, here's the point I'm making here. So if, if my great grandfather had decided to be one of those 300 families and left his job as, as a laborer in the Bristol dockyards, because that's what he did, he was just a laborer in the Bristol dockyards, not a man of great means or position, and, and uh, that's my, my family heritage. But if, if he'd gone, he would have become, he received that large allocation of land, and his descendants would become rich landowners and then multi-millionaires because of the vast oil deposits later discovered on this land allocation. What would that have made me? Well, it would have made me a rich Texan, and I'd be filthy rich with millions and millions of dollars that I could use today for the Lord's Kingdom. But unfortunately, my grandfather decided not to go. <laughs> so I'm—I was just a poor old Brit. Now I want you to see how his decision not to go has seriously affected my economic status today, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, I'm a, if you like, I'm a victim of his decision. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. But if he decided to go, now think what life I would have had and what a, what a different position I'd be in today. I would be, I'd be a multi-multi-texan multi millionaire with vast resources to use, hopefully, for the kingdom, Amen. So you can see how... What I want you to see is ancestral decision, and you need to look at this the other way, that the decisions that you're making are going to affect your kids and your grandchildren. And, you know, many people are tragically victims of their parents' sin and disobedience. Others are the beneficiaries of their parents' fear and blessing of God. And you can start, you can start a family line of blessing. Like Rahab came out of... You know, she, she began a family line of blessing which led on to become one of the ancestors of Jesus because she... You know, she didn't die with the rest of the people in Jericho because she feared the Lord and feared the spies that he sent. Now, her decision affected her whole family, but it's affected every generation right down and, and still does to this day because they've now become part of the nation of Israel and were one of the uh, direct antecedents of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you hear the, hear the principle here? Yeah. Now, that so that law of heredity. Uh, is an important principle and it works for us. Well, let me re- re- It works against us in Adam and it works for us in Christ. So let's just move on to consider this a little bit more. Go on to page eight of your notes. And, and we first of all learn that the, the law of heredity works against us in Adam. It manifests in our lives as what we call original sin, but I'd rather use the word inherited sin. This law of heredity teaches that all of us were actually in Adam, and involved with him when he sinned. If you come to, that's the language which is used in, particularly in Romans five through Romans seven. That's where it's particularly used. That I was actually in Adam when Adam made the fatal decision to step out from God's kingdom and become independent. And I was with him and in him, and so were you, and so was every descendant of Adam's race. And we were all involved with him in that act. So as a result, we became, if you like, the, the we were, we were, we, we were the victims with him of the act, because we were involved with him in the act. And this is not make believe, this is real. Mm-hmm. So when I was finally born, I was born with that hereditary, inherent, original sin, if you like. I prefer to use the word inherent sin because of my forefathers. Adam's decision to disobey God and step out into independence. So I became the victim with him of the devil stepping into my family line, which goes back to Adam, and corrupting and polluting that family line with sin. So, and it was it's not just make-believe, it's real. And and I when I when I was was born, I didn't have a you know, theological sin nature, I had a real one. So you, might, you can tell this ever so easily because my, my mother never taught me to lie but I was a good liar by the time I was four and so <laughs> were you. <laughs> <laughs> <We'll believe> you. <laughs> and my mother would spank me if she caught me lying and it had certain corrective effect but the instinct, and I was never taught how to be proud or to get angry. I was good at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably from about six weeks. If you look at some of these babies screaming the head off in an absolute fit of temper, right. where on earth does that come from? These beautiful, darling little things, so beautiful in their physical equation, but so, sometimes so repulsive in what goes on inside them in terms of total, utter, selfish you know, anger and fury. And you wonder how to handle it in a little, this little bomb that's, that's, that's <laughs> absolutely exploding with indignation at the way it's being treated. Hello? You got the picture? Alan, you used the word victim. Doesn't that suggest somebody else has done the crime? B- better than know. victim. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All oh, right. That, that's a good. That's a good point. That. Yeah. That, um, that, uh, <laughs> Dennis, that. That. Dennis. Uh, that. Ben, uh, ben Davies mother, made. <laughs> Sorry. Excuse me. Yeah. What he's saying is, I shouldn't use the word victim. I should. I should say that he's an actually accessory to the crime, mm-hmm. and that's probably more accurate. You know, we're actually. We're actually active participants although we didn't even physically exist at the time, but somewhere in the spirit realm we already were there and involved with him. Now, we end up in mysteries here, but that's the way the Bible speaks. It speaks that, you know, as a result of that, we, because we were actually there involved with him in the act, it's perfectly legal and perfectly understandable how we therefore pay the penalty for what we were involved in. We were, that's a, a very good correction, I'm glad that you brought that, Ben, because we were, we're not victims, we are active participants, Okay, we are, we are reaping the consequences of, of our hereditary line because we were there participating with them in it. I know it's hard to grasp this, but it's very important to, to grasp it and the practical consequences. And so if you come with me now to, to say, Romans chapter 5, Come take to um, Well, I suppose we could start at verse 12. Therefore, and you find this comes, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. And doth, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. It doesn't say they were the victims of his sin, they actually sinned. Mm-hmm. Although they weren't physically sinners, they were They were there, in him. And, and, but verse 15, the free gift is not like the offence, for if by one man's offence many died, much more by the grace of God and by the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, it abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one man who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offence resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offences resulted in justification. For if by one man's, Offence, death, reigned through, through the one. Much more, those who receive the answer of grace and all the gifts are to will reign in life through Christ Jesus. Therefore, as through one man of offence, judgment came, so, so resulting in condemnation to all men, even so through one man's righteousness, the act of the free gift came to all, resulting in justification. Mm-hmm. For if by one man's sin many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And what, what we're now going on to say is, in, and this is the next leap, is that what God is telling us that you and I were pre-planned before the foundation of the world. That's what it says. Amen? Mm-hmm. And we're told that, that when God wove us together in our mother's womb, he had pre-planned our days before there was one of them, Psalm 139. So in the same way, I was in Christ and involved in the same with Christ when he paid for sin. Mm-hmm. See, in Adam... I was in Christ when, when, and became, if you like, a, a co-sinner with Adam by, my, by the law of, of hereditary. But I was also in Christ. And if you go through Romans 5, 6 and 7, you'll find this phrase comes again and together, in Christ, in Christ, or together with. And it comes again and again and again. What we're being told is that in the mystery of this this law of hereditary, that although I had not yet physically existed, nevertheless God put me into the loins of Christ and i participated in him with everything he did to deal with the facts of sin so i w- were you there when they crucified my lord yeah i was there i was in him no. yeah i was there no. and and if you read the language uh, that, that we were we were buried with him we were we were crucified with him everything that happened to him i was in in him in him, in him and participating in all the benefits of what he was doing he didn't just do it on my behalf In some distant way, uh, he did it by my actual involvement in him, in the act, and therefore God could joyfully and legally declare me righteous because I'd paid for my sins, if you like, in a way. Oh, gee, I've got to be careful we don't cross the line here in this language. That's not quite true. But I was in him benefiting from the fact that he paid for all my sins, but, but I was actually involved in the act, not just a spectator to it, if that's the best way I can find words to put it. Amen? Mm-hmm. And so as a result, it's absolutely legal, absolutely righteous. So in a way, you see, the choice that we have to make is we've actually got two hereditaries. Mm-hmm. You've got to make a choice whose heir or, and whose hereditary line you're going to follow. You can choose to be a... a let me give an example. My wife and I, we, we became American citizens in the year 2000 because God told us to. And, and at that time... Although the law has changed, at that time, to become an American citizen, you had to renounce your former citizenship. And God told us to do it for several reasons, which I don't need to go into. So we were going through this process of becoming American citizens. And finally, you you had to renounce your former citizenship. But now, the laws are changing, you can have dual citizenship. But at that time, you couldn't do that. So to become American, I had to renounce my British citizenship. When we finally came to the ceremony, after going through all the legal procedures, we came to the ceremony where where it was the day that we legally and actually became Americans. And we stood before a federal court judge, along with a group of other people who were doing the same thing, and we took three parts of a solemn oath before the federal judge. And the first part of the oath was that we renounced our former citizenship, British citizenship. The second part was that, that as a loyal American, we would fight as a loyal American, and we need to learn a few things from this in Britain. But I'd fight as a loyal American against anyone who attacked my nation. Now I, was, I couldn't become a passive American; I had to be a warring American. How interesting! I couldn't say I'm going to be an American passive. No, I've got to be an American who's prepared to fight for my nation against any enemy that comes against it. Otherwise, I couldn't become an American. The third part of the of the of the of the solemn oath was that if I happened to have a citizenship of the enemy which came against my nation, America, I would still fight loyally for America against that nation. Now in our group, the first person in our group was actually an Afghani, and this was just at the time when America had just declared war. It was just after, you know, um, 9-11, and it was just when America declared war in Afghanistan. So for them, that was a very real issue. Hello? And then within four days, of that i was i was i was on my way to india and i needed to get a new visa so i sent i got myself an american passport very quickly and sent for the first time i sent my american passport to the uh, indian embassy in washington to get myself a visa to go to india now i i lived in india for 14 years as a british citizen Um, all together, on and off, and then I'd visited India probably at least a hundred times in the following years. I'd been in and out of India, and all over my passport were stamps and stamps and and getting visas, and and, and they kept a careful record on on there of all the things that I had done, and I'd been responsible for many, many thousands of Hindus coming to Christ, planted many churches, and my record was pages and pages of stuff against me. So as a result, whenever I applied for a new visa, they would only give me three-month visa with with the requirement to report to the police. And even that was difficult to get, because I was getting more and more unwelcome in India because of my horrendous past, as far as they were concerned. So every time I would arrive in India with my British passport, with my visa, they would look at it very suspiciously. They'd go and see some senior officer. and just, I would just pray hard and finally they would reluctantly stamp it to allow me to come into India for another, another three-month visit. It was getting more and more difficult because I had so much against me. Then in uh, January 2002, I was going to India for the first time as an American. I sent off my passport to the American, to the American to the Indian Embassy in Washington and and I thought, let me see if I can get a six-month visa, just just to try, six-month tourist visa. (laughs) To my amazement, when I got my passport back, there was a ten-year visa. (laughs) Unlimited number of times. I could stay for six months at any one time, and I didn't even have to report to the police. (laughs) It's it's a visa they only give normally to Indians who... It's Indian citizens going back to their own home country. I was amazed when I saw this. I thought... So something happened in the embassy, but it was like God saying to me, well, because one thing I was thinking, well, maybe I ought to retire and stop going to India. he said, no, you're going for at least another 10 years. <laughs> so I have a visa up to 2012. And when I went to India for the first time, I presented my American passport to this guy on, I know on, on the immigration. He types Alan Vincent, the American, into the computer. There's nothing on it. There's a whole blank page. <laughs> Alan Vincent's done nothing wrong. <laughs> All the handwriting of all that was against him has been taken out of the way, nailing it. That horrible Alan Vincent who's born after you know, Brits, he, he's, been, he's, in, he's dead, he's gone. But in my new citizenship, I was absolutely blameless and was welcomed with a warm smile and welcome to India. Now, that's a picture of what happens to us in Christ, you see. If you want to keep your a- Adamic passport, then you're going to, the devil's going to give you Mary hell. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. And it's because he's a right. But if you say no, he's dead. Alan Vincent, the descendant of Adam, he's dead. But a glorious new Adam Vincent has been raised up with Christ, and he's of this new genealogy. The glorious Son of Man, the glorious Son of God, who owns and, and controls everything, and there's not a, a thing on my my citizen of the Kingdom of Heaven passport is it, totally blank. And with that, I can go anywhere, amen, because I own the world. Yes. I'll give you one example of this. I was up in the northeast corner of India some years ago, and I was wanting to go into an area called Nagaland, where there was a, there was a, a terrorist <coughs> war. I mean, the Nagas were fighting for independence, and they had a rebel army that was trying to, to, to throw the Indian government out of their piece of land called Nagaland. It was a primitive part of North India. And I got as far and I was gonna go there for some conferences. God was moving in a powerful way by his spirit. When I got there, I had this, this 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 visa to enter that part of the No, I didn't, I'm sorry. I thought I had the paperwork to get into this. When I got to the to the to the desk at a place called Galhati to fly to wherever I was gonna go, I forget now. I was gonna to fly to Galhati, I was in Calcutta I was in Calcutta, I was gonna to fly to to Galhati. And when the guy looked at my passport looked at my, pas- looked at my, and said, "You know, you're a foreigner." He said, "Even Indians aren't allowed to go here because there's a there's a, there's a strong war going. You've got to get, get special permits." So I can't give you your plane ticket. You can't get on this plane because you haven't got the proper paperwork. And I said, "I said, but I thought I had." And, and I was told that it was all okay. He said, "No, we won't accept this. You won't be allowed on this plane." And just refused to give me a ticket. And so I sat there and I thought, when I was supposed to be starting this conference preaching, I said, Lord, I've got to get there tonight. Somehow, I said, after all, I said, you know, I own the world. It's my airline. They can't... (laughs) (laughs) And and Nagaland is part of your territory and I'm going there as your ambassador. Mm -hmm. And I just sat there and prayed. I prayed in tongues when I couldn't think of anything else. And I prayed a lot in tongues. And and the plane didn't take off on time, which was not unusual (laughs) for for Indian Airlines. But then after a while, there was a... um, a commotion, and some very smart, suited gentlemen came down the corridor and came down to the check-in desk, and they, apparently, I learned, this guy was the personal secretary of the, of, of the chief minister of the state of Assam, which was the state under which Nagaland was was held at that time. He was the chief minister of that whole region. And he, he decided suddenly to come on a political visit to Galhati, and he, they sent an order, hold the plane, the chief minister is coming, clear the front part of the plane, make it into a, a reserved you know, you know, a VIP cabin and put all the rest of the people further back down the plane and, 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 and so the secretary came to make all these arrangements and they brought a, a full military band and they assembled by the plane they put a, a big red carpet and rolled it out to the plane this is absolutely true and I and I sat there praying in tongues and then for no reason that I can explain the the Chief Minister of I learnt out that this guy was the personal secretary of the chief minister of Assam and he was making all these arrangements. And he suddenly turned to me and he said, Is there anything that I can do for you? <laughs> and I said, Sir, I've got to get on that plane because I'm preaching at a Christian conference tonight and, and they and, and they need me. I said, There's thousands of people gonna gather and, and I need I'm just gonna preach Jesus to them and, and, and I, I just want to I want i just get on that plane. And he said he said, um, give me a piece on that plane. And he said he said, um, Give me a piece of paper. I'm just going to preach Jesus to them, and, and, and I, I just want, to, well, I I just get on that plane. And he said, he said, um, give me a piece of paper T- to the clerk at the desk. And he took a piece of paper and he wrote a personal permit for me, stamped it with the seal of the chief minister of signed it with a flourish, and gave it to me and said, that'll get you into me, and said, that'll get you anywhere. <laughs> Political visit to, you and he, they sent an order, hold the plane. Because the chief minister is coming, clear the front part of the plane, make it into a, a reserved, you know, a VIP cabin, and put all the rest of the people further back down the plane. And and and, and so the secretary came to make all these arrangements. And they brought a, a full military band, and they assembled by the plane. They put a, a big red carpet and rolled it out to the plane. This is absolutely true. <laughs> and I and I sat there praying in tongues. And then, for no reason that I can explain, the the Chief Minister of I learned out that this guy was the personal secretary of the chief minister of Assam and he was making all these arrangements. And he suddenly turned to me and he said, Is there anything that I can do for you? <laughs> and I said, Sir, I've got to get on that plane, because I'm preaching at a Christian conference tonight and, and they and, and they need me. I said, "The thousands of people going to gather and, and I need I'm just going to preach Jesus to them and and, and I, I just want to, well I want I'm just to get on that plane. And I just want I just want, and I, I just want to, well, I want I'm just to get on that plane and he said Plane. and he said he said um, give me a piece of paper t- to the clerk at the desk and he took a piece of paper and he wrote a personal permit for me preach Jesus to them and and, and I, I just want to well I want I just get on that plane and he said he said um, give me a piece of paper t- to the clerk at the desk and he took a piece of paper and he wrote a personal permit for me stamped it with the seal with the seal of the Chief Minister of signed it with a flash and gave it to me and said that's the seal of the chief minister Stam, signed it with a flash and gave it to me and said that'll get you into was the ch- to the clerk at the desk and he took a piece of paper and he wrote a personal permit for me stamped it with the seal of the chief minister Stam, signed it with a flash and gave it to that whole reach. well I want, I'm just get on that plane and he said he said um, give me a piece of paper T- to the clerk at the Desk and he took a piece of paper and he wrote a personal permit for me, stamped it with the seal of the Chief Minister Russtam, signed it with a flash and gave it to me and said, "That'll get you," and said, "That'll get you anywhere." The seal of the Chief Minister Russtam, signed it with a flash and gave it to me and said, "That'll get you anywhere." He said, "That'll get you anywhere." A personal permit for me, stamped it with the seal of the Chief Minister Russtam, signed it with a flash and gave it to me and said, "That'll get you anywhere." I suddenly to come on a political visit to Galhati and they sent an order. Hold the plane, because the, the chief minister is coming. Clear the front part of the plane, make it into a, a reserved, you know, exec, you know uh, VIP cabin, and put all the rest of the people further back down the plane. And and and, and so the secretary came to make all these arrangements. And they brought uh, a full military band, and they assembled by the plane. They put a, a big red carpet and rolled it out to the plane. This is absolutely true. And I and I sat there praying in tongues, and then for no reason that I can explain. The, the chief, minister, chief minister of, I learned out that this guy was the personal secretary of the chief minister of Assam, and he was making all these arrangements. And he suddenly turned to me and he said, Is there anything that I can do for you? <laughs> and I said, Sir, I've got to get on that plane because I'm preaching at a Christian conference tonight, and, and, they, and, and they need me. I said, The thousands of people are going to gather, and, and I need, I'm just going to preach Jesus to them, and, and, and I, I just want to I want, just get on that plane. And he said, he said um, Give me a piece of paper. To the clerk at the desk and he took a piece of paper and he wrote a personal permit for me, stamped it with the seal of the chief minister Rustam signed, signed it with give me a piece of paper t- to the clerk at the desk and he took a piece of paper and he wrote a personal permit for me, stamped it with the seal of the chief minister Rustam signed it with a flash signed it with a flash and gave it to me and said that'll get you anywhere <laughs> off to the clerk at the desk and he took a piece of paper and he wrote a personal permit for me stamped it with the seal of the chief minister rustam signed, signed it with a flash and gave it to me and said that'll get you anywhere it'll get you anywhere he said um, give me a piece of paper T- to the clerk at the desk and he took a piece of paper and he wrote a personal permit for me stamped it with the seal of the chief minister rustam signed it with a flash and gave it to me and said that'll get you anywhere signed it with a flourish and gave it to me and said that'll get you anywhere signed it with a flash and gave it to me and said that'll get you anywhere with a flash and gave it to me and said that'll get you and said that'll get you anywhere <laughs> and he, he said um, give me a piece of paper T- to the clerk at the desk and he took a piece of paper and he wrote a personal permit for me <laughs> stamped it with the seal of the chief minister rustam signed it with a flash and Rustam, signed it with a flash and gave it to me and said that'll get you anywhere to the clerk at the desk and he took a piece of paper the and he took a piece of paper and he wrote a personal permit for me, stamped it with the seal of the Chief Minister of signed the flash and gave it to me, to you anyway. Gave it on the political to Galhati and he, they sent an order, hold the plane, because the, the Chief Minister is coming, clear the front part of the plane, make it into a, a reserved you know, you know a VIP cabin and put all the rest of the people further back down the plane and, 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 and so the Secretary came to make all these arrangements. And they brought... A, a film mill band and they assembled by the plane they put a, a big red carpet and rolled it out to the plane this is absolutely true and i rolled it out to the plane this is absolutely no reason that i can explain the the chief minister of the plane because the, the chief minister is coming clear the front part of the plane make it into a, a reserved you know you know vip cabinet push the people further back down the plane and and and, and so the secretary came to make all these arrangements and they brought a, a full military band, and they assembled by the plane. They put a, a big red carpet and rolled it out to the plane. This is absolutely true. And I and I sat there praying in, in tongues. In tongues, and I learned out that this guy was the personal secretary of the chief minister of Assam, and he was making all these arrangements. And he suddenly turned to me and he said, "Is there anything that I can do for you?" And I said, "I've got to get on." And I said, "Sir, I've got to get on." I said, "Sir, I've got to get on that plane because I'm preaching at a Christian conference tonight." where, it, you know, I, I, I'm not a Calvinist, and I don't accept the, the Calvinist doctrine that there are, you know, that there is, um, what's the word? Um, well, I, I, the, the, there is, the, what, yes, there is, first of all, there's what's called irresistible grace. I always think of a rather beautiful woman when they say that, but <laughs> <laughs> it was the lady we used to call irresistible grace. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't believe in the weight of all scripture that that's provable. I know it's a doctrine of Calvin. 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 Calvin is that there is limited atonement. There are certain people that are in the mystery. Mystery. God To be to be cast into hell. And of course, great example. And the mystery is a mystery. Is of.